Hello and welcome to Quick Looks, episode 15. This episode is being recorded on Sunday, April the 24th. 2016. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing a couple of new titles. We're going to be discussing a title called 13 Days. And we're also going to be discussing uh, another title from Stronghold Games. Uh, This one entitled simply Stronghold. And so you're going to get to hear the the, uh, opinions of the two of us uh, about uh, these two intriguing new titles. And, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, um, I demand to be heard, Mr. Uh, Chairman. Uh, uh, who is this? Why are you banging your Mr. shoe? Mr. Chairman. Why are you banging your shoe, uh, Mr. Khrushchev? I am not Mr. Khrushchev. I am Lloyd Keller. I am fun to drum on theboardgamegeeks.com. I demand to be heard. The I'm chair, my f- fine, fine, thank you, thank you, Mr. <laughs> Keller. The chair recognizes Mr. Keller as the co-host for this episode of Quick Looks, number 15. Yes, this is Quick Looks 15 from The Long View, and Lloyd and I are going to be discussing a couple of new titles today. Uh, Quick Looks is generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. If you're intrigued by any of the titles that you're hearing about today, please go and check out Gamesurplus.com and put it in order. Uh, They are renowned for their customer service, their attention to detail, their shipping speed, their packaging, uh, just about anything that you would want as a board gamer, Gamesurplus.com is going to provide for you. So go and check out why they are our favorite choice when it comes to ordering games online. And if you do place an order, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. I also want to give a shout out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to stop by and check them out if you're in the northeastern PA region. They're right on Main Street in Stroudsburg, conveniently located off of Interstate 80. They are a growing resource, lots of open table space, a huge selection of games. That's The Gamer's Edge. My name is Jeff Gamble, and of course I am here uh, with uh, Premier uh, Lloyd Keller. Uh, So Lloyd, hello, and uh, welcome once again to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad my shoes are off and I'm a little more comfortable right now. There you go. There you go. I thought it was only one shoe, though. I, I, I took them both you off. You took I, them both off. I, right. I can't be unbalanced <laughs> is the problem. Because even even if one shoe's off and I'm just unbalanced, I'm not going to be comfortable. Exactly, exactly. So uh, we've got two titles to talk about tonight. Uh, the first one that uh, we're going to cover is from Stronghold Games. Uh, this is a, a really interesting title. This is one that came out years ago. Uh, this was originally a portal game. It was one of Ignacy Chevyachek's uh, first designs, if not his first design. Uh, and Nick, I never remember whether it was Stronghold or 51st State. Um, but um, this is a design that he came up with as like an ultimate kind of... Um, siege kind of a game you know a two-player game one person is defending the castle the other person is storming the castle and the game gained a a pretty good reputation uh from gamers who really were just looking for that kind of ultimate storm the castle kind of a game there really wasn't anything else like it uh castle panic was a game that kind of uh, came out that kind of give you a little bit of that feel and uh, but they're all kind of lighter games whereas this was like a very meaty kind of a heavy strategic game and then he came out with a expansion for it called the undead to make it even more interesting and so this kind of became a game that had like a little bit of a cult following and people really dug it uh, but it did have some kind of rules things and uh, some issues some things that were a little unclear and it was my understanding the game because uh, i never played the first edition uh, the game was kind of fiddly 
lots and lots of little edge cases and you know uh, hyper specific kinds of things that you need to remember. And so fast forward a bunch of years, and what you end up with is a reprint of the game uh, that was done in conjunction with Stronghold Games. And so when they did the reprint, they also decided they were also going to revise the rule book. They were going to uh, streamline the game a little bit, uh, try to smooth out some of those really interesting but kind of rough edges, right? Because the first edition of the game came out in 2009, and the second edition just came out in 2015. Uh, and I believe that was a Essen release because it wasn't there when we were there at Gen Con, was it? No, I don't think it was. No, I think it was kind of like hopeful that it might be there, but it wasn't or uh, something of that nature. So it ended up being a uh, Essen release. And so uh, this is definitely a state of siege kind of a game. Um, it was nominated for a 2015 Golden Geek for best two player board game. Um, and so it was really kind of exciting to get to see the game kind of brought back to life in a way and brought before a new audience. And uh, I think that um, Portal Games and Stronghold both wanted to kind of uh, try and take a little bit more time with the game, a little more care, uh, nicer components, things of that nature, which anyone who's familiar, uh, you know, especially with Stronghold, knows that they, they like to kind of really go for uh, a little bit over the top when it comes to uh, the components in their kind of basic retail games, like not necessarily like a Kickstarter kind of a thing, but, um, you know, they're just nice components. Um, and so this was really kind of a, a, a beautiful kind of a marriage because Ignacy and Steven, of course, they also have a podcast together, uh, Board Games Insider. Uh, they've known each other for years uh, in the industry and have been friendly. So this was kind of really cool because I, I know from listening to interviews with Steven that he always wanted to have Stronghold as a title for Stronghold, Stronghold Games. Right. And so now he finally has it. So um, this game is currently rated 8.1 uh, on Board Game Geek uh, with uh, uh, 210 ratings. And so uh, it is a game that's designed by Ignacy Chevyacek, and uh, uh, the original uh, edition was published by Portal. Now it's Portal and Stronghold. And the artist um, is a whole team of artists that came in on this. And I would love to try to pronounce their names, but I will completely butcher it. So I will have to defer to people and let them go and check it out on Board Game Geek uh, themselves. Um, so we got this game, uh, for review from Stronghold. So that's uh, something that, yeah, I just want to kind of put out there and, uh, Lloyd and I kind of dove into it and it really was pretty much everything that I was expecting, which was nice. You know, I, I was expecting it to be deep. I was expecting it to be a really tense, cool kind of castle siege i was expecting it to be asymmetric and it totally was um lloyd you played uh the attackers when we played and and i always played the uh defenders because i I kind of uh, like that and so the two sides are are quite different there's almost like two completely sets uh, different sets of rules uh, for the two sides and so if you're the castle defender your job is to try to hold everything back for as long as you can. That's kind of your win condition if you can survive and hold out. Um, but you don't have enough. You never have enough. There's not enough people to man the walls. This castle, this stronghold is ridiculously big. It <laughs> really like, is. covers a lot of real estate. <laughs> and you have like people that you're trying to like man the walls with. And there's all these different types of, you have like your, your warriors, you have your archers, um, and you have your heroes. And so you have like all of these different people that you can kind of put up on the walls to try to defend the different ramparts and the different sections of the castle. But you're never going to have enough. 
you're always going to be kind of like running around from spot to spot as you see the threat coming in from the offensive player, which would be the attacker. So from the defensive standpoint, you really are. You're reacting. And so if you like that kind of experience, you get to kind of really immerse yourself in that. You get to like totally just say, all right, what am I going to do given the situation right now, given what I just saw the attacker prepare to do? How am I going to handle it? How am I best going to allocate my resources? I know I'm going to have to leave something a little open, something a little bit not as not as, as uh, well protected as I would like. I'm going to have to take a little bit of a chance. Um, is this just a feint? Is this an actual kind of a, a, a main attack? What's he going to do? So if you like that kind of reactive play, then I would definitely say you should try being the defender. Um, from the other side of the table, from the attacker side, it's a totally different kind of a feel. How would you describe how it feels to be the attacker in Stronghold? Oh, it's definitely a very aggressive uh, role that you're taking on there because most of what you're trying to do is maneuver your different uh, goblins and orcs and trolls, I think were the three different mm-hmm, cubes mm-hmm. that you had. And it's funny because they're these little itty bitty cubes, but you, tiny, have, yeah. you have tons of them <laughs> because, you know, you can have like a huge swarm of like 15 to 20 of these cubes that all just converge in one spot. It's really interesting. Um, but yeah, very aggressive side. Uh, one of the coolest things for my side as the attacker was the way that some of the siege engines and some of the different machines that I built work because you get this little deck of cards Mm -hmm. that includes uh, ones that show a hit and ones that show a miss. And every time you fire off whatever the siege engine or the catapult or whatever it is, you take the top card off the deck. And the interesting thing is if it's a hit, it's a hit and it gets reshuffled back in. However, if it's a miss... You pull that miss card out of the deck, right? Right. Because you're getting more efficient at aiming yeah, and finding the range, yeah, and yeah. finding the range. So it, those decks are really designed to, in the very end of the game, when you get to that last round or two, if you've thinned them down to where they're all hits, you just know they're you're all. Just, yeah, you're you're going to do some damage. You're yeah. going to do a lot of yeah. damage. You're going to power through that wall if you set right, these right. things up right. I mean, it's a really interesting. And, I mean, it, it, it really does feel very aggressive by the end. That's what I mm-hmm. liked so much about it. Yeah, you know, and, and, and the Siege Engine decks are something that, that really popped out of my mind, too, because it seems so thematic, you know? Mm-hmm. It doesn't surprise me that, you know, Ignacy is, is able to create these thematic games. He's kind of known for it when you think about Robinson Crusoe and, and, and other games like that. But I love the very sim- simplistic way he was able to incorporate the idea of finding your range with siege weapons in this little simple system. Because at the start of the game, uh, and it's also nice because it, it balances well, because at the start of the game as a defensive player, you're, you're a little weaker, and you're still trying to figure out what you're going to do and what your overall plan is. And so, you know, these siege engines start hurling things, but they're, like, wildly inaccurate, and they're missing. And, like, you just see, like, one of them, like, dropping, like, 50 feet in front of the wall. <laughs> It's like, you know, people up on the wall laughing, you know, and like, you know, the guy, the goblins like shaking their fists like, you know, yeah, yeah, well, we're going to we're going to get you next time. Right. And so each time um, you kind of get that respite in the beginning of the game where it's rare for those siege engines because there's more misses than hits in those decks. Yes, there are. And so it's rare to kind of really have it be a huge problem for you early in the game unless it's just bad luck. But there's this growing sense of like doom as the game goes on because every time those things fire off 
you know they're getting better. They're getting better. They're finding their range. And so eventually, like you said, they're just going to pound you. And so I love the way that those little thematic elements work their way into the game. Uh, Another really cool way that the thematic elements work in is you can move people from like one section of a wall to another. Like you can try to, to reinforce a section that's coming under heavy attack because if you ever kind of don't have people to kind of absorb your damage that are on the walls, then the walls take damage. And if the walls take too much damage, then you can have a breach. And if there's a breach, you're done, basically, right? So mm-hmm. um, you really have to kind of like scurry about. And the way the movement for the most part works, aside from some special cards and things that you can play and, and different um, special actions you can activate, is you have to move your people like from a, a rampart to the courtyard and then from the courtyard to another rampart, another wall. And so it takes time. Like you can't just teleport people like from one spot to another spot um the heroes are actually really mobile they can kind of that that they feel like they can just kind of pop up kind of anywhere but uh, for the most part trying to move your people it's a little there's like a process you have to go through and it takes time and i like that because to take 20 people off of one wall and then rush them to another section it takes them you know they gotta like run down the stairs and they gotta cross through the courtyard (laughs) meanwhile there's people screaming stuff and stuff flying all over and then they gotta climb the stairs to the other wall and so i like that these little thematic elements are part and parcel of this game that they really took the time to kind of weave them in there and yet they wove them in there in a way that's not very intrusive at all like from a rule standpoint and I also like the fact that it's intuitive. A lot of the things about the game are fairly intuitive when it comes to things like movement, when it comes to the danger of siege engines, when it comes to the idea that, you know, Lloyd was talking about you can mass these huge kind of forces in a muster area, but then you have to like move them. You have to move them forward into these like, you know, out of these staging areas and then try to get them in position at a wall so they can attack. Meanwhile, they're subject to harassment from the defenders, and you can set traps for them, and you can (laughs) do all sorts of things to try to hinder them as they're trying to come forward. And so I like that too. You know, it's not that you can just bring these people up, they kind of come out of the forest, it almost looks like on the map. The map's really pretty. Uh, The the main board is like a map of the castle and and, uh, these different paths and routes that are kind of cleared, you know, out and that the the forces are going to be taking as they try to attack the castle. And so I really like that, that, you know, there are things that you can do that take you time and take your opponent time and they feel like they should take time. I While we're talking about time, I also think one of the absolute coolest mechanisms in this game, something that I absolutely adored and was just like, this is the neatest thing I've seen in a while, is... Anything that the attacker does to try to prepare to come and storm the castle takes them time. The time that the attacker takes to do those things is abstracted into these little hourglass tokens. So if it takes you know you a long time, if you're trying to build a siege engine, you're trying to do something that takes time, I get that time. That time comes to me. And then I can spend those time tokens to form my defenses, mm-hmm. to train new units, to you know, upgrade units, to um, maybe try and put out some kind of traps and things um, yeah. so that – or send a spy out, try to sabotage one of your machines yeah. or you know something like that. So the more deadly you are as the attacker, 
usually means the more time you have to spend, but that time is then also given to the defender, Mm -hmm. which then kind of keeps the playing field kind of level. Yeah. So that it really does seem to always be very tense, you know? Like, you never get the feeling that the attacker has a huge upper hand. You can... It can feel that way when you're looking at the masses of armies. <laughs> well, yeah. But as far as, like, who's <laughs> actually making it to the walls, right? You, you, you very rarely feel until late in the game if it's not going your way. You very rarely feel like, oh, this is, like, totally just a mismatch. Like, a lot of the times, because of how that time management system works, I always can like, kind of go back and say, well, this is what I did wrong, or I should have done that instead. Mm-hmm. Um, I should have moved these guys into this position. Um and so those are the things that I think are really, really kind of interesting. And it, it again, you can look at it and you can say, well, you know, from a mechanical scan- standpoint, that is just a, you know, a kind of, it's not a catch-up mechanism, but it's like a, it's like a way to keep the, the sides roughly equal. Mm-hmm. But it's not because it's very thematic. Like, it, it, you know, in the time you're sitting out there, you know, building your siege towers, it, you, you know, the people in the cast are like, huh. I wonder what they're doing out there. <laughs> they're not just know. scratching their beard yeah. and looking over the wall. What it's is that lo- over there? It's lunchtime, I think. It's lunchtime. Why don't, why don't we go? It's a giant we, wooden bunny. That's right. Should we report it? I don't know. Pitch <laughs> Lamu, right? So, yeah, I don't yeah. know. So, um, I really like that. Like, there, there's yeah. all sorts of little touches and elements like that. The training, the way you kind of upgrade your troops and things mm-hmm. like that. All of the things that are the, that are part and parcel of the game are thematic. Um, and I really enjoy that. Uh, the other thing that I enjoy is while the defender has this sort of time economy to work with, the attacker has this like interesting card system that they're working with. Can you talk oh, yeah. a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, that's definitely interesting. On the, the attacker's side of the board, uh, you have these slots for this just huge array of cards. Mm-hmm. And every round, <clears throat> you're allowed to swap out and switch like any of those cards that you want, but they call that, I guess, your your attack plan. Right. And then what happens is, and this is where this time comes into play, the attacker starts from the left side of those cards, mm-hmm. and one at a time they decide which cards they're going to activate. And it's when you activate these cards a lot of times that you are giving the time then right, to, the, to defender. the defender. So sometimes you can put a bunch of cards out that you really want to use and then when you realize how much time you're going to give the defender, you're going to, well, oh, which ones do I actually want to use right, then? Right, right. Because if I give them all this time, they're going to be able to set out this trap and they're going to build, you know, like a new unit here or they, they might be able reinforce to do the something, tower, reinforce the tower a, yep, yep. here, something like that. And it's like, oh, so that, that gives you a lot of really good, interesting decisions. The other cool thing in that array of cards is you get spells yeah, yeah. as the uh, as the attacker and the the spells work in a really interesting way because every spell has uh, three different markers that go with it and the backs of those three markers are all the same but on the underside only one of those markers is the actual location of the spell mm-hmm. so when the attacker activates a spell they put these three markers out in three locations wherever it's applicable for that spell and only the attacker knows where it's actually going to hit right and so you know the the defender might try and do something to negate the spell in one spot 
And if they negate a spot that was not really the spell, it's very interesting. So yeah, there's a little yeah. bit of bluffing oh, going on. It was <laughs> so much fun. Let me tell you, I'm I sure loved it. Was. It wasn't I fun enjoyed, for me. Oh, I love the spells. No, sure it was did. so much fun. That's like the cathedral. Like I have that one that one thing that kind of like puts a, a wall of protection. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure you love the and cathedral, that, right? But yeah. that took a lot of time was <laughs> does, the fun part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there, there's so many great things going on in this game. And it, it never really feels like it's one-sided. Right. It never really feels like the attacker always has the upper hand or the defender always has the upper hand. Right. Because there's so much back and forth. If I do this, I know you're going to be able to do this. Right. And if you do this, well, I can respond then at the start of the next round by trying to do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, it's... I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely enjoyed this one uh, quite a bit as well, um, simply because of all the things we've talked about, which is the incredible sort of thematics of it, right? The way everything kind of works the way you would expect it to. The archers for the ranged combat. Uh, the heroes pulling off impossible kind of uh, moves and saves and, and whatnot. Um the, the limited nature of the components that you have to work with as a defender. You know, you only have so much that you can work with. Um, and sometimes when you train, you know, troops and you, like, take one out, you know, because you just turn this archer into this warrior or, or what have you. And so now that archer is now a warrior, so you get the warrior, but then you've kind of, like, lost that archer. And so you have to make those decisions, right? What kind of tower, you know, improvements do I want to put cauldrons on the walls, you know? Do I want to put poles on the walls? Do I, you know, all of these different kinds of countermeasures and specializations and tricks that you can try to pull as a defender are matched by what the attacker can do. And so there's always this interesting kind of mind versus mind chess-like nature to it, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, because and then you kind of get to know each other's tendencies a little bit and, and, you know, how and then you have to adapt to that, you Mm -hmm. know. So I really enjoyed almost everything about this game. Like the gameplay was really engaging. The components are really nice. Like the archers actually look like little archers. They look like little bowmen. And all the, you know, all the pieces are different. Like, you know, the monsters are all these little cubes. But that's kind of because of the sheer number of them that you're going to be dealing with. And uh, a lot of times you're going to be spending those little monster cubes as kind of a currency. Yeah, there are a couple you know? times you can spend them as yeah, currency, yeah. Which, is so, which, is, which is kind of neat. So there's all of these different kinds. Of, uh, the, the map is beautiful. The, card, uh, the cards and the card art are really uh, exceptional and, and pretty. They're very period looking, you know? Yeah, they are. They're these kind of like... Uh, uh, sketches some of them like on parchment you know yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like that uh, brownish colored ink instead of just like you know it's just everything works you know mm-hmm. uh, from an aesthetic standpoint from a game uh, play standpoint uh, the pieces are you know easy to pick up and manipulate they're not like too fiddly or anything like that and when you're looking at it it really does look like you're like way up high in this citadel <laughs> With your people looking down, and they look like cubes because they're like down there, you know. But but they're coming, you they're know. They're coming, and then you have to kind of decide, you know, what are you going to do? There's so many other interesting things. Like I remember you talking about um, force composition for the attacks, you know, because the goblins are numerous, they're fast, but they're weak. You know, the trolls are ridiculously strong, and then like trying to like figure out what's the best combination to try to bring to a wall because yeah. a lot of times I will have kind of countermeasures that i can use like if i have you know a a cauldron 
which is specifically for a type of monster like a goblin cauldron or something, then bringing up a bunch of goblins isn't going to help you on that rampart. Right, exactly. But you might try to like make a feint in that direction and then try to swing over to another section where I don't have that. Um, and so there's all these really kind of interesting decisions to be made during the game. So I really, really enjoyed that. Um, so overall... I'm pretty enthusiastic about everything about this game, except for the one thing that I'm not enthusiastic about. And uh, that's the rule book. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of rules questions that we had, especially in our first couple plays, trying to figure out how everything exactly works. And, I, you know, I understand that they smoothed out a lot of the sort of rules ambiguities and edge cases from the first edition to the second edition, but not having played the first edition, I don't really know how awesome of a job they did at that. All that I know is that, you know, pretty much as soon as I went to try to get questions answered on the Geek, try to figure out some some problems that we were having, the first, the threads were saying, well, the first thing you must do is download the FAQ. Like, you know, that that's that's an immediate. Like, you have to the game. You have to have that to play the game. And I'm like, really? Yeah. So I downloaded the FAQ, and the FAQ answered a lot of our questions. But there was a lot on that FAQ, yes, and, and I kind of remember thinking to myself, you know, if one of the stated purposes of the reprint was to fix the rulebook which was a problem. And, you know, Ignacy, love him as a game designer, but his rule books, like I think about the rule book for Robinson Crusoe. I think about the original rule book uh, for 51st State. Um, th- these, these are not the best rule books. Like I think probably his best rule book might be Imperial Settlers. And, you know, that, that one's pretty yeah. clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, he's not known for, for incredibly clear rule books. Now, to be fair to Ignacy, he's Polish. So I don't know whether this is Ignacy or whether or not this is someone that Ignacy is working with to translate the rule books. But what I do know is that Steven's an American. <laughs> and so when you are going and doing a new print run, I just kind of assume that Steven and, and someone on Steven's team and Stronghold or whatever took point on that rule book to make sure that rule book was done right and it was tight. And it just appears to me as a player that there's still way too much that was kind of left out of that rule book. And so I was a little disappointed in the rules. I was disappointed that I had to immediately go to an FAQ. I was disappointed that that stuff wasn't kind of ironed out for the second edition because a lot of the questions were relatively, they weren't like weird questions. They were questions that, you know, I think were reasonable. Yeah. And so I was a little disappointed about that. So I don't know where that happened. I don't know whether that happened on Portal's end, on Stronghold's end, but that is my one complaint about the game. Everything else about the game, I I think I have to say I really, really like. So I still can say I enthusiastically endorse the game. It's a lot of fun. It's beautiful to look at. It's got high, high replay value. Very, um, it's both strategic and tactical, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got all those juicy things going on, tons of decisions, really engaging. 
don't like the rule book. I, I'm not going to say it's the worst rule book I've ever read. I think that one uh, has to go to some other games that I've played. Um, but Which will not be mentioned which, right Which now. shall not be mentioned because uh, I'm trying to be nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is a problem. Like this, this rule book to me is a problem. It's a little bit of a flag. Um, so if you're looking at this game, just make sure you download that FAQ. Um you know, and and then we'll see what the future brings. I I know that Stronghold has announced that uh, Portal and Stronghold are going to be doing, they're going to be redoing the Undead expansion. I believe they're going to be bringing that one back out awesome. for the second edition. I'm really looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean, I guess my thing would be please tighten up the rule book, gentlemen. You know, like that that would be my one complaint about the game. Everything else, um, big thumbs up and sold on. What about you, Lloyd? I really enjoyed this game as well, and I'm just looking forward to the summer when we can do like. The War of the Ring and interrupt it for the Battle of Minas Tirith <laughs> yeah, right, so right. that we have to play a three or four hour game of Stronghold and then right, go right. back and finish this game. And you know, like 10 hours later, we go, Wow, I was we cool. just, yeah. that was really cool, you that know. Yeah, that would be kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people have uh, uh, you know talked about this game as being like the board game of Helm's Deep, yes, exactly. You know? um, too few people, desperate situation, huge horde, you yep. know, coming and, and attacking. So yeah, I could totally see that. That would be cool. I'm also looking forward to, you know, quite frankly, just swapping roles. Like I want to try being the attacker, you know, because when we've played uh, the times that we played, it's been I've been the defender, you've been the attacker, and I, I would definitely recommend that for people because it is complex. Mm-hmm. It's not like ridiculously complex as a game, but there's a lot going on, and I think you do definitely get better as you play it, as you kind of understand how to play each side. And how important kind of each thing that you can do is. You have to kind of assign in your mind sort of a a relative worth, like a value to each of the different kinds of actions that you can take and the different kinds of things that you can do. And then, of course, knowing that your opponent's doing the same thing and then you're constantly reevaluating. But it's so much fun to try to do that that, like, you really should, I think, stick with either the attacker or the defender for a few games mm-hmm. before you decide to kind of switch and explore the other side because there's a lot to learn about the game and you can grow in the game, which is something that I uh, appreciate about it. And it's another reason why I think it has high replay value. Even though it's the same map, it's the same you know, kind of situation, mm-hmm. because of all the decisions involved, there's definitely um, a lot of room for replayability in there, and and there's a lot to explore. So um, that's kind of our thoughts, and, and that's what we think about Stronghold, second edition, uh, designed by Ignacy Cheviacek and published by Portal and Stronghold Games. So next up is a new title that Lloyd and I are going to be talking about. This game is called 13 Days, The Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, This is a game that was released in 2015. Uh, The designer is listed as uh, Asgar Granrud and Daniel Peterson. Um, So these are the two designers who uh, came up with this game. Uh, This game kind of popped on my radar, unfortunately, late 
Uh, I, I for some I don't know how I missed it, but I've never been like a huge Kickstarter guy, Lloyd. So I kind of like missed it when it was on Kickstarter. But uh, I, I eventually found out about. It. I was like, ooh, you know, this this sounds like it's kind of right up my alley because I love these kind of political games, historical games, uh, games that kind of use a card driven mechanic. And I'm like, ooh, you know, this 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 sounds really good. Um, and so the designers were kind enough to uh, uh, send a copy for review. Uh, this was published by Jolly Roger Games with an artist of Jacob Walker. So uh, my apologies to the designers if I mispronounce their names, but uh, this is a, a title that has quickly kind of, you know, spoiler here, uh, this is a title that's quickly gotten into my rotation as one of my favorite games. Um, there's many, many reasons for that that we're going to get into in a minute, but... So for those who aren't familiar, um, this is a game that is set in the time period of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this is the time when the United States and the Soviet Union uh, were kind of eyeball to eyeball. As a matter of fact, that's one of the cards in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a situation where we were probably closer to nuclear war than any other time, I think, uh, that we know about. Let's put it that way. Um, this was over the deployment of uh, Soviet missiles in Cuba. Um, which the United States felt that they could not tolerate. Uh, They were too close to our shore. Uh, The Soviets, of course, felt this was retaliation for our deployment of missiles, I believe, in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had had, uh, deployed missiles um, of our own, and they were like, hey, you know, that's uh, right on the border of of the Soviet Union, and this is right on the border of you, so, uh, you know, uh, fair, fair, right, you know? Um, The United States didn't see it that way. And so uh, they decided that they were going to try and stop this deployment of the missiles. They set up sort of a, uh, uh, an embargo line and said, uh, you know, you may not bring those missiles uh, over here. And if you do, uh, there's going to be repercussions. And so there was a very tense time in my parents' uh, memory when it was very unclear about what was going to happen. And the possibility of a limited or full nuclear exchange or some kind of war or conflict was a very realistic possibility. So this is a game that is dealing with that specific 13-day period, that specific issue. And so the game uses a lot of mechanisms that are familiar to people who have played games like Twilight Struggle. Uh, We're basically talking about sort of an area influence, an area control kind of a game. We're talking about scoring cards. We're talking about a deck-driven kind of a game. And so, uh, Lloyd, why don't you take a few minutes and kind of explain this one to people out there who are listening. All right. This is such a great uh, kind of scaled-down version of Twilight Struggle that it's a card-driven game. So it lasts over three rounds. Mm -hmm. And every round, uh, you're going to get three objective cards. They call them agenda cards. And the interesting thing is you're going to put your markers out, whether you're U.S. or Soviet, you're going to put them out into all three regions or all three locations, wherever those agenda cards are. But then you secretly select one of those agendas. Right. So right off the bat, you've got a nice little bit of bluffing going on back and forth in this game. Then you also get a hand of these action cards. And the action cards are either Soviet cards U.S. cards or U.N. cards. And the U.N. cards are kind of neutral. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't really affect one side in favor of the other. They're just, they're just neutral. However, if I'm playing as the Soviet player and I want to play a U.S. action card, the U.S. player gets the 
option of actually doing what's written on the card first. So that's very interesting. And vice versa. If I'm playing as the U.S. player and I want to play a Soviet card, the Soviet player gets that option. So you're going to be playing uh, either four or five cards out of your hand one at a time. And at the end of the round, you've got this one leftover card that kind of goes face down into this pile of cards that are called the Aftermath Mm -hmm. cards. And what's cool is at the end of the game, uh, all those Aftermath cards are going to get flipped over and possibly maybe even swing uh, the points in one favor or another based on the cards that are there. So that's really interesting. The cards can be used in a couple of different ways. They all have what's called a command action on them, which means you can simply use them to put out X number of cubes. It's always at least one, and it's never more than three cubes. Right. And when you put these cubes out, if you put one cube out, you're fine. However, if you put two cubes out, somewhere one of the nuclear tracks, and there's three of them in the game, uh, one of those nuclear tracks in your country is going to creep up by one. If you put a total of three cubes out, that nuclear track's actually going to creep up by two, which can be very interesting because... If anyone ever gets into a certain zone on this it's nuclear track, yeah, they're, it, they're DEFCON. the DEFCON tracks, you actually kind of nuke the world and you just lost. Right. <laughs> so you've got this nice little uh, tense mechanic of how much influence do you want to spread across this very small map? Um, do you want to play cards that are going to allow your opponent to actually take some really cool and really groovy actions on your turn right. and and uh, you have no control over that, especially if you're sitting there as the U.S. player and you've got nothing but Soviet cards in your hand. <laughs> There's not a darn thing you, can, you do can do about, about it. it. Yep. So uh, you've got a nice little bit of area majority going on in the map. The map's divided basically into three different regions. You've got what they call the warfare uh, battlegrounds. You've got the political background or battlegrounds, mm-hmm. and then you've got kind of these um, media, which includes like television and radio and mm-hmm. entertainment. And so you've got these three different battlegrounds that you're kind of vying over, and it's just it's it's a lot of fun. It's one that you and I've we've played at we've least we've played a uh, lot. We've played yeah. a lot now. And I'd say at least nine times. Yeah. And, and I've played it with others like Jason at the game store and other people. I've played it uh, several times with them. I mean, I've got to be, I played it with the boys, so I've got to be like close to 12 or, or 15 plays in. And one of the reasons for that is because one of the things we haven't mentioned yet is that the game is very short. I mean, once you know this game, you can knock this game out in 20 minutes tops. Like yeah. you, you can, you know, and it's you're a and you're very thinking. Fast. Yeah, you're thinking. It's not like it's mindless. I don't want people to get that. Like that's going to be 20 minutes of intense thinking. 20, 30 minutes maybe. Right. Yeah. Um, I think the box says 45. I don't really see that. Um, once you know the game, it's it's you got to make your decisions. You got to go for it, and and you know you got to think about. Uh, what you want to do, what your long-term strategy is, etc. And there's so many things to think about. But if you're used to playing games like Twilight Struggle, this one's going to seem like a natural to you. Like this is going to, you're going to take to this like a duck to water because so much of it is very, very familiar. And there are so many aspects of the game that are just so much fun. Um, (laughs) You know, your scoring is basically a tug of war, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like Twilight Struggle. It's your prestige. And so at the end of this 13-day crisis, whoever has more prestige is the winner. 
or everybody dies because you triggered, you know, <laughs> nuclear war. So, um, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that's, that's so interesting here. And that bluffing mechanism um, that reminds me of the, the thing you were talking about, Stronghold, where you put out the three tokens, right? right? Exactly. And only one of them is... Only one of them's right. Is really, really nifty because there's a, a lot of good opportunities there to kind of um, try and trick your opponent. Um, you know, for example, I might have drawn the Cuban military... I might have drawn uh, Berlin, and I might have drawn the military def contract. Mm -hmm. So two of my objectives are, my possible objectives are kind of tied up in military. One is Cuba, one is the military def contract, and the other one is Berlin. So maybe what I do is I select the military def contract because at the beginning of this round, I look down and I see that I'm already one up. And basically the way the scoring works is whatever you're scoring, if you're scoring a def contract, you're going to take a look at your marker on the DEF contract versus your opponent's, and you're going to score the difference, okay? If you're looking at the map, it's very often, there are exceptions to this, but it's very often you're going to score the difference plus one. Mm -hmm. um, and so I might look at that and say, well, you know, I'm already one up on the DEF contract, and he's got a couple of cubes in Cuba, and I only have one. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the DEF contract, because every cube I dump in Cuba is going to make him think Cuba is my objective. And it's going to be natural for me to dump him in there if Cuba is my objective because he's actually got more influence there than I do. Mm -hmm. But what it's actually going to be doing is escalating my military def contract because it's a military battleground, right? Because there's also a, a political Cuban battleground, but this mm -hmm. is military. So I might be able to faint him into thinking that... I'm going after Cuba militarily, but actually I'm not. I'm just going after the military def contract. And then later in the game, I might set myself up for a future turn by putting two more you know, cubes, if I happen to have the right card combinations, um, in, say, the Atlantic box or the, uh, uh, the Cuba political box, right, uh, or, or somewhere else. Um, and then at the end of the round with those def contracts, you're going to kind of bump them up anyway. And so... It's really an interesting game because you can bluff your opponent. That's a really hyper-specific example, but you can do the same thing, the same kind of trick with just about any of the kind of battlegrounds, whether it's a political battleground, a world opinion battleground. You can really kind of just juke and, and like, stutter yeah. step and, like, make someone just completely whiff on what your objective was. <laughs> and, you know, very often it does involve kind of waiting until those last couple card plays where you sort of tip your hand mm -hmm. as to what you're actually going for. But if you, if you do it right, if you play it enough, that situation I described where I'm actually increasing my position in two areas but you don't know which one it is does kind of force your opponent to be like well it's either this or this um i'm gonna dump more cubes in cuba yeah you know and then you're like 50 Yay! 50 shot right yeah. right and so you know you might end up scoring a lot of points that way so um there's so many kind of layers there's the the situation for example like the, there's a cuba sphere of influence which is the cuba military the cuba political and then the atlantic um, battlegrounds, and those three are kind of connected on the map by a ring. And so you can kind of focus on those sometimes if you get some agenda cards that steer you in that direction because they're all kind of linked together. So when you score, for example, one, you're going to get bonuses if you also control or have majority in the other two. 
So even though it might not be helping me to put those two cubes that I was just talking about in the you know political right or or something like that, it's setting myself up for later. Because the other thing that's kind of cool is that because of how the agenda cards work, once um, anything but DEFCON, like once any area on the map is scored, like, you know, Cuba or Berlin or Turkey or, you know, the Italy different Italy or, yeah. or, or whatever, Atlantic, they're not going to come up again. Mm-hmm. And so this is a way for you to kind of like start to work towards the future, knowing that that card's going to come up. And either by placing those cubes out, I'm either helping myself long term if I get the right agenda because now I'm dominant in two areas in that Cuba sphere of influence sort of thing, right? Or I'm automatically putting you at a disadvantage because I've already got two in there as a foothold and you have nothing. Mm-hmm. And so are you going to fight me for it? Or can I discount that when if I don't get the card and you get it later and I see your little marker in there? Well, maybe you're not going to bother with that because I've already got a two to nothing lead there, right? So now I can focus on the other area. So there's lots of different layers to the game. There's lots of different things to consider. The order in which you play cards can sometimes be really crucial. Whether you play the card for the event or whether you play the card for the command points, mm-hmm. just like in Twilight Struggle, is often a really agonizing kind of decision. You know, there are some cards that the event is seems like it's almost too good to pass up, but it's almost... It's almost a trick sometimes. Right, yeah. You know? Like I can play a card that says my opponent may not play any of their cards to de-escalate. Because you can not only escalate yourself on these three DEF contracts, but you can also try to de-escalate and cool things down. So I might play a card that says, well, you can't de-escalate any of your DEF contracts for the rest of this round. And you might not care. And there was one of my cards that I played that really did nothing for me, did not advance my position, did not help me at all. And so just like in the coin games where, I know I'm jumping around here, but just like in the coin games where sometimes the event seems so juicy and so tasty and you're like, oh, I got to play this. No, a lot of times it's better to put out cubes. But then you Mm -hmm. end up with another problem, don't you? Which is that you don't have enough cubes, Right, right? Yeah. Because there's a limited number. So that's kind of interesting because then that'll force you to play cards for command points, but you're actually pulling cubes. So one of the things you can do is if you play that card like Lloyd's describing that says, okay, I can take, uh, I can place up to two cubes on the board or I can remove up to two cubes on the board. And for the most part, whenever we say these things, it means from a single battleground. Like mm-hmm. you, you, Unless a card text tells you you can spread them around, you, they have to come from a single area. So if I pull two of my cubes out of Cuba... I'm going to de-escalate my military by one, mm-hmm. right? Um, if I pull um, cubes out of another area, I can de-escalate one of the other DEF contracts. Mm-hmm. And this can be really important because one of the ways that you can lose that we haven't talked about, you can lose by having one of your markers be up in the DEFCON 1 area by the end of the round, or you can lose because all three of your markers, the political the military, and the world opinion are all in DEFCON 2. So if all three are up in DEFCON 2, you can lose that way too. And so all of these things will make it necessary sometimes for you to play cards just to remove cubes to lower a DEFCON track so that you don't lose the game, which then gives your opponent an opening. Mm -hmm. Or you might have to pull a track down that you're worried about 
and that might be the one where one of their little flag tokens is, and you might just have been giving them another two points or another point or, or something like that. Yeah. So that's a really juicy kind of a decision point too. So, and then the final thing that, that can be a lot of fun that I found with the game, Lloyd, is when you intentionally push someone <laughs> into DEFCON 1. Like there are things that you can do. Like one of the, the uh, uh, world opinion kind of battlegrounds on the bottom of the map that, that Lloyd was referencing uh, whoever wins that gets to escalate or de-escalate uh, one of the DEFCON tracks by one. Mm-hmm. And so I ended the last game playing with Jason. Uh, he ended up scoring five points on me, which is almost the maximum amount of points that you can score in a round because you know it takes you from zero to five. Now, I was already at one on my side, so it put him all the way to four in the last round of the game. And he was like, I've got this in the bag because even if the aftermath gives Jeff two points, I'm still going to be up. But what he he kind of forgot, what he missed, was that I won that last battleground in the bottom corner there. And I pushed his uh, DEFCON marker into DEFCON 1. And so that ended up being uh, the nail in the coffin for him. Um, He wasn't able to recover from that. So uh, because after you evaluate your agendas, then you take a look and see whether or not you've triggered a nuclear war. So... There's so many different cool things about the game, and it plays out very differently um, mm-hmm. each time that you play it because you don't know which agenda card you're going to be dealt. Sometimes you're dealt the same agenda card, which is really interesting. Like if I get dealt That's two, to me a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if I get two military agenda cards and say Turkey, well, I got a flag marker in Turkey and I got two on the military track, so. Now it's only a 50-50 choice for my opponent to figure out what it is I'm trying to do. And so that can sometimes be a little disheartening, but it's also a cool part of the game. Because, again, if you can pull it off and in like the last turn throw a bunch of cubes in turkey, then you might be able to pull off a surprise. But otherwise, you might just be doing damage control. You might just be trying to make it a push. So that, um, you know, you might not score any points, but neither can your opponent. And that's one of the other things that I really appreciate about this design, which is if I have a scoring card, I have an agenda card, and I don't actually have the advantage, you actually can gain points off of my agenda card. So if I have that military... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) If I have that military card, say, for example... And I end up having to de-escalate my military because uh, my military DEF contract because otherwise I, I would be uh, in danger. Because when you score one of those DEF contracts, you the first thing you do is you escalate anything in DEF CON two. And DEF CON two goes up one, mm-hmm. and so I might end up having to de-escalate just to avoid that so that I don't lose the game. But then I've kind of given you the advantage. And so now actually you score a point off of my agenda. <laughs> so there's there's all sorts of interesting cat and mouse. It's definitely like a cat and mouse kind of feel. Wouldn't you agree? It, it totally is. Especially when, you know, I have two agenda cards that are the same and you don't even notice it. Like that's my favorite part <laughs> because I'll be sitting there and I have two people. That happened two, once. It happened that twice happened at once. least. No. You know, two markers in, you know, world that opinion and you once. go, wait a minute, you, you have, have two markers. You're yeah, a bunch I've of had nonsense. That <laughs> happened once. I will grant you once. I I, I'll that. definitely take twice on that. I don't one. think so. I don't <laughs> think so. I think you're lying. But no, there's the, this is, you know, to compare this to Stronghold, which was a two player game. Right, right. Very asymmetrical. This is a almost entirely symmetrical game because you're you're getting cards mm-hmm. and you're just vying for these different battlegrounds. Mm-hmm. 
different agendas, and both of you are bluffing simultaneously. Right. And, you know, you're both looking at this DEF CON track and trying to maybe stay high enough on one track you're going to score points, but never really letting everything creep into DEF CON 2. Two. Yeah, that's and, a problem. And, you know, there's, there's so much that... I'm going to do something to bring a track down, and then you're immediately going to bring another track down as well because it's going to possibly lose you the game. Right. So, you know, there's there's a lot going on in this game, and it's so fast once you learn it. Yeah. So yeah. much fun. Yeah. It's really – and it's incredibly fast to set up. I mean – Yeah, there's really no tiny setup. little board. You know, yeah, you don't need board. anything bigger than what you have. you got some colored cubes. you got – Six little flag markers. You got uh, some some wooden discs. For some reason, I have twice as many as I need. But you've got some wooden discs for your DEFCON tracks and uh, two decks of cards. Boom! You're you're ready. To shuffle them up. You're ready to go. There you go. Um, it's it's very quick to play. It's like a great like lunchtime game. I know that sounds like bizarre, yeah. but like you could definitely play that um, while you're eating lunch. It's just it's a fantastic kind of a game. I wouldn't. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit when you say it's like symmetrical. I think that the card events are a little asymmetrical like they do feel a little bit different right um you know based on what you which events actually take place Mm -hmm. and which come into play and who gets those cards now that's a little luck dependent there but like who gets those cards it really can kind of influence the game i think and and it can make the the size feel a little bit different and so i I get what you're saying about it's symmetrical in that the objectives are always the same in that it's, hey, who has more, you know, who, who has the advantage, whether it's on a DEF contract or whether it's in a, a battleground, right? Who, who has more, you know? Mm-hmm. So it is symmetrical in that way. I, I just think that the, the sides feel a little bit different when you play them. Um, I'm not going to say it, it's as distinctive as Twilight Struggle, but I think the designer's stated intention was to distill Twilight Struggle down and, and put it into something in a, in a reasonable time frame that people could play all the time. And so, yeah, I think they definitely hit the mark with this. Uh, the flavor text and, and the historical information on the cards, uh, the layout of the cards is very clear. The graphic design is really nice. Um, there was one very publicized misprint on the agenda cards, but, you know, again... It, it's not a huge deal. It's a shame, but it's not a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it basically was talking about uh, the DEFCON tracks. And the DEFCON agenda cards say that the uh, score is equal to the number of cubes. And you don't mark the DEFCON tracks with cubes. You mark them with the discs. And so it was a, a, a little kind of a, a mistake there. Um, but, you know, that, that's like a one-line fix. Like it's it's not that huge of a deal. Uh, now, I know I just took Stronghold and Portal to task for their mistake, um, but there's a difference to me when I have to go hunting things consistently in a rulebook or online, and someone just just very, um, th- there's just a misprint on the card. Mm-hmm. Like, it, that that's like, it's unfortunate, but it's not a huge deal. Everything else about the game, the components of the game, the game box... The size of the game box, I was like really happy they didn't try to pack this thing into this enormous box and then have you with all this dead air. Um, it's a perfect size box. It you know fit into a backpack, no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, everything about the game, I'm really really excited about. It's it's something that I enjoyed tremendously. I enjoy the aftermath, which we haven't talked about a lot. You did a great job of outlining that. 
you know, because you, you commit your last card to the aftermath. And there's other opportunities on the board. One of the World Opinion uh, Battlegrounds will let you uh, take a blind draw from the top of the deck. And if you like the card, you can put it in the aftermath. If you don't, you can discard it. Yeah. And uh, whoever wins the aftermath gets two points of influence. Yeah. And so I've actually lost the game twice on that, where I've been at like plus one, mm-hmm. and after a long, hard-fought game, but I didn't win the aftermath, and so I and it's a two-point swing. It goes to negative one for me, plus one for the bad guys, and so. I end up losing. Um, and that only happens if you get through all three rounds without yeah. nuclear war. Right, right. So yeah. there's not even a guarantee that that's going to happen every round or no. every game, no. which is interesting. Yeah, you know, and, I, and I've tried all sorts of different strategies. I've tried going heavy with the aftermath, trying to guarantee myself, lock down those two points. I've also kind of gone with the strategy of I'm going to ignore the aftermath. As a matter of fact, I'm going to bury my opponent's best cards in the aftermath. So you don't have to use them then on your exactly. turn. And so they don't get the benefit of exactly. the, the text right. at the bottom. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I've always thought to myself, when I go with that strategy, as long as I'm at plus three or greater, I've won the game. Because I know I'm giving up two points to my opponent. But because I'm not having to play their cards, sometimes it's not as hard to be on that positive side of the scale for the good guys. The good guys, of course, being whichever side I play. <laughs> <laughs> the other side is always the bad guys. Yeah, always. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's there's just so many different things in this little package, um, you know, that, that uh, Jolly Roger and the designers put out. It's, it's just such a fun game. Um, it's engaging, but it's not like a, a fluffy game. Like, there's definitely times when you'll be sitting there really thinking hard about what do I want to do, What's the order that I want to play these cards in? Just like you do in Twilight Struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, where am I going to place my influence? How much am I tipping my hand there? You know, uh, in Twilight Struggle, if I start building up a whole bunch of influence in South America, it's not going to take a rocket scientist for someone to say, "Oh, I wonder if he has the scoring card." For some- <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. You, know, you got to be subtle. You got to misdirect, and and this game has that that misdirection, that subtlety, the opportunities for bluffing. So for me. Um, 13 Days is just a, a really, really good game. It's it's gotten into my rotation regularly. I'm taking it with me like everywhere I go because it's so fast. Mm-hmm. If I'm waiting for another game to finish, I can just say, hey, let me teach you this. And I can teach this game in like five minutes. It's not that hard to teach. especially. And if someone already knows, I'm probably exaggerating. I can teach the game in 10 minutes. But if it's someone who's played Twilight Struggle or a coin game, where you have that idea of you can use the card for this or you can use the card for this. Like if you're familiar with that concept, you're going to pick this game up in five minutes. Like it's Mm -hmm. not that hard. Um, If you're totally new to the genre, it might take longer. It might take closer to that 10 minutes or so to explain it. But this is a game that's easy to explain, has a lot of replay value, is engaging. It feels thematic to me. I know some people have said they, they think it's, it doesn't feel super thematic, but I don't know. I mean, maybe they don't have a lot of imagination. I mean, I know that sounds like a horribly harsh statement, but I am getting older, and so I don't really care uh, sometimes. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're playing cards that are from history, like I- events and things mm-hmm. and places and people, and um, y- you're looking at this time period of history. You know, I think there is, like I talked about, you know, the eyeball to eyeball card. Yeah, you know? there is. There when totally you look at is. what that card does, you know, that to me, that's thematic. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I don't feel that the game is mechanical. Um, some people have posted that they kind of feel it's, it's you know, it's not Twilight Struggle because it doesn't, it's not as thematic. Well, it's a 25-minute game. It, yeah, it's so You short. know, and the theme is there. I feel it when I'm playing it. I feel it in those DEF contracts. Every time I do something, I'm just oh, imagining, yeah. well, if I send these troops into Turkey, huh, <laughs> Well, of well. course. And now that's going to inflate some people's nervousness. That's going to put me closer to war. I mean, it's incredibly thematic. It is. You know? And if I remove those same troops from Turkey, everybody goes, <sighs> everybody breathes a little sigh of relief. The death contract creeps down. Maybe nothing crazy is going to happen, you know? So I don't get the criticism that some have leveled saying that it's not like thematic or it's not as thematic. I, I don't know. To me, I feel the game hits mechanically. It hits um, in that kind of mind versus mind. Great two-player game. It mm-hmm. hits it, 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 on all the kind of areas that I would want it to hit on. And yet, it's not this like light, fluffy filler. You know, it's not like playing Cold War. Or, you know, CIA versus KGB. Or it's not. It, it's not like playing something like that. It's it's really got. A lot of the feel that I like from Twilight Struggle in this tiny, tiny package. What what would you say is your kind of final thoughts? I, I would totally agree. And some of my favorite moments of this game have actually been losing because I'm <laughs> so well, I know that sounds weird, but you know, I'm so focused on, yeah, I'm gonna score a lot of points, and then I forget, oh wow, every single DEF contract increases at the start of the next, next round and, and I go you oh gotta, and you got you got one turn to try to pull them all down and now and I'm like yeah. oh now I'm already in defcon 3 or defcon 1 right. and I, I I gotta get that back down right right and you know it's just it, there's there, there have been games that I've lost where I completely missed that uh-huh. because I was so worried about the lead I was gonna have over you right in that particular um, whether it was political or military or world opinion, you know, I was just going for a lot of points and I went, oh, wow, I just created nuclear war. Well, good for me. Yeah, yeah. I lost the game when I scored a lot of points <laughs> doing right. it. I love that. That's great. Yes. Your cockroaches so, will be happier than mine. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, you know, yeah. this is a game that, yeah, I, w- I would definitely give it, you know, five thumbs up, I guess, if I could. If you could. If five I thumbs could. Up. Because, you know, I'm living a nuclear holocaust right now because I'm a mutant now because I created, you know, nuclear holocaust. So I have five thumbs. Okay. All right. So (laughs) (laughs) it's just such an odd number to pick. I would have thinking you picked like 10, you know, like like five. I'm going to do a scale of one to five and give it five thumbs. I don't even know what that means. Okay, so in your world, you in a world where people have five thumbs, this is like that episode of, of The Big Bang Theory, right? In a world where beavers rule the world, what food was never invented, right? <laughs> so in a world where you only where people have five thumbs, five thumbs. you would give it five thumbs. Because otherwise up, right. it sounds like it's a five out of ten. Because <laughs> most people operate off of a ten one to ten scale. Okay. Okay. So in a world where you have five thumbs, you give it five thumbs. Alright. Totally. Alright. In a world where I have ten thumbs, I would probably give it. I'd probably give it like eight, nine thumbs, you know? It's not a perfect game, but it's pretty darn close. Um, and it's hard to impress me anymore. Um, 
just because like anybody who's been doing anything for a long time after a while you get a little jaded you start to kind of feel like i've seen this before i've seen this before um but this game like really there was nothing like super revolutionary about the design it just works like it right it just does exactly what i wanted it to do which is can you let me play something that feels like twilight struggle all the time Mm -hmm. instead of just a couple times a year when I can get somebody to do it. And this game delivers on that for me. And it delivers in a way that I'm just happy with all around. There's like nothing that I'm unhappy with here. And so for me, that's why, you know, it impresses me. It doesn't impress me with innovation. It impresses me with achievement of a stated goal. And so that's why I would have to give this like, a you know, an 8 or 9 out of 10 right now for me. It's that heavy in my rotation. I like it that much. I imagine it might long-term go into that eight range, you know, but I don't know that it'll ever slip below that because I really, really enjoy this game quite a bit. So uh, those are our thoughts, and that's our review for uh, the new game, 13 Days, The Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, published by Jolly Roger Games and uh, designed by Asker Gr- uh, oh, goodness gracious, <laughs> Granrud, Granrud and Daniel Skjold peterson and gentlemen, I really apologize for butchering your names, but I tried my best. Um, you obviously tried your best and made a great game, so thanks for that. Well, that's about all the time we have today for this episode of Quick Looks, episode number 15, in which we reviewed Stronghold by Stronghold Games and Portal, and in which we reviewed 13 Days, the Cuban Missile Crisis by Jolly Roger Games. I want to, of course, thank uh, Lloyd Keller, uh, my host, uh, for uh, being uh, gracious enough to join me tonight. Thanks, Lloyd. Oh, you're welcome, and I promise not to slam my shoe on the table anymore. Okay, all right, that's good. That's just good manners, really. It, it, it is. It's just good manners. <laughs> so I want to thank you. Uh, I, of course, want to thank my sponsor, GameSurplus.com, and uh, for all of their support. And if you're interested in these games, please go and check them out. And uh, if you do decide to order from them, please be sure to tell them Longview sent you. The Longview is also a proud... A member of the Dice Tower Network, so go check out all they have to offer as well. So, for Lloyd Keller and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody for listening, and have a great night.